Welcome this evening. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Welcome to our program this evening. And we are welcoming the representative from Texas's 32nd Congressional District, Colin Allred, and moderated by KERA's reporter, Christopher Connolly, one of the reporters. A special thank you to Dallas College for hosting us this evening. We love to partner with Dallas College. They're a very important uh, friend and partner of ours. And we also have some students and teachers from Hillcrest High School joining us this evening. Yes, thank you. which happens to be uh, congressman's, the congressman's alma mater as well. The council's Global Young Leaders Program provides essential opportunities with students, uh, for students and teachers to engage with our programming. And we're so grateful whenever they uh, attend our programs. And I also wanna thank Linda and uh, Linda, I saw you a moment ago. Linda and Richard Schaefer, thank you so much for your support of the Global Young Leaders Program. We appreciate you. I also want to thank some of our other partners, PNC Bank, Haynes & Boone, Lockheed Martin, and NEC Corporation of America. They help us thrive far into the future. And then before we get started, I just want to say uh, to please turn off all of your devices and your tablets, whatever you have on you. We don't want to interrupt this important conversation that we're about to have. And then I want to introduce our two speakers this evening. We are honored to be hosting representative, the representative from Texas's 32nd Congressional District, Colin Allred, born and raised in North Dallas by a single mom who is a Dallas public school teacher. Congressman Colin Allred was class president at Hillcrest High School and earned a full ride uh, uh, for football to Baylor. Allred deferred his acceptance to play in the NFL. He was a linebacker for five seasons before sustaining a career-ending injury that opened the door for him to fulfill another dream that he had, which was becoming a civil rights attorney. Allred served in the general counsel's office at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, and he later returned home to Dallas and decided to run for office and represent the district that he grew up in. Our moderator is Christopher Connolly of KERA, like I mentioned. He's a reporter covering issues related to financial instability and poverty uh, for KERA's One Crisis Away series. In 2015, he joined KERA to report on Fort Worth and Tarrant County. And he's from Fort Worth, and he's also focused on politics and criminal, the criminal justice series there. Uh, before coming to Texas, Christopher covered the Maryland legislature for the NPR member station in Baltimore. He also worked at NPR as a Joan B. B. Crock Fellow, one of the postgraduates who spend a year working as a reporter, show producer, and digital producer at Network HQ in Washington, D.C. Okay, so before we get to this conversation, I would like to welcome my friend, the Chancellor of Dallas College, Dr. Justin Lonnen, to the stage, and he's going to give a few brief remarks, and then we'll get started right away. Thank you again for coming. It's great to see everyone, and we will see you again soon, hopefully after this evening. Thank you, Justin. Thanks, Liz. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being at Dallas College. Uh, it's a pleasure to host this conversation. 
the World Affairs Council is such an amazing partner. So Liz, thank you for the, the opportunity. We are a center for teaching and learning. I see some of our esteemed faculty and others um, in, the, in the crowd uh, that work hard every day to help support our students on their educational journey. And I talk a lot about here at Dallas College, we're in the barrier busting business. We are focused heavily and intently on those barriers that get in the way of student success to, through, and beyond our doors because we offer an amazing instructional product in the classroom that's high quality, that's affordable, but for so many of our students, that's not enough. Life gets in the way. And so we were doing all we can to support the whole student with the wraparound services that we provide here at Dallas College. And so conversations like we're um, having this evening uh, you know, shine light on some of the challenges that our community face. A couple weeks ago, we had our commencement ceremonies here at Dallas College. We have over 120,000 students that make up Dallas College across our seven campuses across Dallas County. So we held six commencement exercises over a three-day period with 9,500 graduates. And so I'm proud to tell you those 9,500 graduates uh, included uh, a population that over a third of them were first-generation college students. 71% of them were female graduates, and 85% of them were students of color. We're working really hard at Dallas College to provide opportunity to our community. We are your community college, and so we want to do all we can to support our community, to support our students, to support our business and industry that are depending on us to provide the workforce of tomorrow. So again, thank you for taking time to be here at Richland to engage uh, and, and listen in this conversation this evening. So with that, no further ado, I'd like to invite uh, Congressman Allred and also uh, Christopher to come up to continue the conversation. Thanks so much. So, Congressman. They're cheering for you, Chris. What's that? They're cheering for you. <laughs> uh, how's your week been? Uh, it's been uh, good. I, you know, we came back just this morning um, from doing our part of keeping the global economy from crashing in the House of Representatives. It's uh, <laughs> a small thing. Yeah. You know, I, I hope the Senate uh, can do their part and that we can do it before the 5th, uh, because we honestly don't know exactly what will happen uh, just how bad it will be uh, if we're unable to, to deal with this uh, situation, but I, I think we will. So. I want to get into what's in the deal in a little bit, but, but walk me through, like, what does a week look like for you, you know, when, when something like this is happening? Just as a member of Congress, just nuts and bolts, are you, like, in your office? Are you huddling with staffers? Are you, you know, being called into meetings here and there? I mean, what does it look like just day to day? Well, this was a, a, a negotiation largely between the White House uh, and the House majority, which is the House Republicans. Uh, it didn't involve much of the Senate, didn't involve much of the House Democrats. But we knew uh, that for it to pass, it was going to take a number of Democrats to vote for this legislation. 
Uh, and so what we're trying to do is, number one, understand, of course, what had been negotiated and what was in it. Um, but then also, you know, uh, what was the, the actual procedure going to be on, on the floor when it came up? Uh, the majority's role usually is that their job is to pass the rule that kind of governs the bill we're going to vote on. The rule governs the amendment process, all of, how it's considered, how to be voted on. Uh, and that's usually the majority's prerogative and their responsibility. But we also knew that they weren't going to have enough votes to do that either. Uh, so we you know, had to then initially vote to pass the rule to get to the bill. And then when the bill came up, you know, there was a lot of us who were prepared, of course, to vote for it, knowing that not everything in it is something that we necessarily ourselves would have uh, negotiated, uh, but understanding that the consequences are so dire uh, that we shouldn't, we have to make, make sure this happens. And I'll just say, I mean, you know, I, I don't think that the debt ceiling should be used by either party uh, as a negotiating tactic because the consequences are just too catastrophic. The proper place to discuss, you know, taxing and spending is the budget. That's, you know, and, and that's where we have government shutdowns and things like that. So when you use the, the debt ceiling, it becomes more of a hostage-taking situation where you say, you know, we've got this hostage. If you don't give us our demands, then, you know, uh, and so that's, that's where we ended up. But I actually think where it ended uh, was, you know, acceptable, uh, and it will take this off of the table for the next two years. Is this something that should have been done when the Democrats had control of the House and the Senate and the White House? I mean, there was at least some talk about that earlier. Um, you know, this is, the, like you said, I mean, the, the White House was negotiating at the, you know, barrel of a gun uh, and kept the economy from collapsing, <laughs> which is no small thing, but, but also gave up ground on Democratic priorities. So I guess, is this something that I guess could have been prevented uh, earlier? Maybe. Um, we didn't have the votes in, in the Senate to do that. Um, and yeah, that's, that's part of what you know, we knew was, this was probably going to happen. Uh, but also, of course, we didn't know what was going to happen in the election. We didn't know, you know who was going to control which bodies and, and all that. Uh, and, and so you know, I think in the last Congress, we're now in the 118th and the 117th Congress, we had one of the most productive Congresses in modern American history. Uh, from the infrastructure law that we passed, it's going to bring $35 billion to Texas over the next five years, uh, to our Chips and Science Act, which is going to help us bring back American manufacturing of semiconductors, the Inflation Reduction Act, first time in 30 years we've done anything on gun violence prevention, and the list goes on and on and on. And I'm leaving out some major pieces of legislation just in that short list. Uh, and so we got a lot done, uh, and now what we've been focused on largely is implementation of a lot of that. And through this process, we also protected those investments. And I think that was really important, that the infrastructure dollars that we have authorized are still going to be coming to Texas. The chips and science money is still going to be there, because those are investments that are going to bring a lot more in economic output than what we're putting in in government investment. Do you have, I mean, are there sort of big takeaways just on a, you know, either kind of political, tactical level from this whole episode that, that you know, have occurred to you over this time? Or just, you know, takeaways that people in the audience should just understand about, you know, how our system works or doesn't work? Well, I think it should be concerning uh, to all Americans that, that we had so many members of Congress, and I think we'll see also in the Senate, who are willing to default. Uh, that should be very concerning uh, because, as I said, 
the consequences are so terrible with the reserve currency. It's not just our economy that would be crashed, it's you know, the global economy would be impacted. Uh, and you know, to have you know, the former president saying, you should just do a default, as if doing a default is just you know, a political issue. It's not. It's real people's lives. It would, you know, defaulting on the country would default on America's families and their inability to pay their bills. And, and you know, that's, to me, the thing I get you know, frustrated about with some of these political discussions, because I was raised by a single mother here, as you all think heard in the introduction. Uh, and you, know, you would hope that your leaders are keeping in mind the folks who are just on the edge, just trying to hang in there, or who are trying to hang on to and take care of their family. Uh, and this whole discussion lost a lot of that and became very much about you know, the politics of it uh, and who could get what. But as I said, in, in the end, what I think was negotiated gives both sides something to say that they uh, took home. There are some you know, important uh, provisions in there that I think uh, we will benefit from in Texas, uh, some permitting reforms that are going to help us, uh, I think, as well. As I said, some of the, the most important investments from the last Congress uh, were protected. And the kind of 20% or 21% across the board budget cuts that we'd initially heard that the Republicans were saying they wanted did not occur. Um, but I think we showed again that you know, there are some adults in the room, and it's often on the Democratic side right now, where everybody's honestly, I think, looking at us saying, OK, what are you going to do to get us out of this mess? And that's kind of where we landed. Do you expect any consequences for your colleagues who are willing to vote to go over the edge? Um, probably not. Um, and that gets me into my voting rights stuff and, and why we should get it, you know, do away with gerrymandering. Uh, because I think that the incentive structure uh, in our Congress and in our le state legislatures as well is so skewed uh, because if your only concern uh, is your next primary election and not having to appeal broadly to your community, uh, then you can see sort of this kind of extremism become the norm. And that's where we are right now. We're in a cycle of that. Uh, and so, you know, the folks who uh, didn't vote for it, I'm sure feel quite com confident in that. And there are some Democrats also, to be clear, uh, who, who didn't vote for it. And I, I disagree with that decision as well. Yes, we didn't get everything we want. Yes, so there are some things that are objectionable. But think about the alternative. You know, it's uh, the lesser of two evils kind of a situation. And oftentimes, uh, in legislation, you don't get everything you want. And you have to understand that, too. Um, so you're running for Senate. I am. Uh, <laughs> and what that really means is you're trying to do something that Democrats have not done in almost three decades, which is win a statewide election in Texas. So how are you going to do that? Well, you know, I'm used to doing things that have never been done or that are thought to be impossible. Honestly, my presence here is pretty unlikely. Um, as I said, uh, you know, the way I grew up, if you'd been there at the beginning, you probably would not have pegged me to be having this conversation with you right now. Um, and you know, I believe in a different Texas than the one uh, that I see being represented, broadly speaking, but particularly with Senator Cruz. I, the, the way I grew up, uh, you know, relying on community organizations like the YMCA, going to public schools, relying on you know, folks in our community giving me a helping hand, tells me that we are a different state than I see us being represented. And I think also, uh, I am uh, somebody who, if we disagree on policy, that's fine. But if I think that you're not in it for the right reasons, 
that really bothers me. Uh, and I think in this case, most of us know, uh, if we really think about it, that Senator Cruz is in this for himself. He's not in this to represent 30 million Texans. That's, that's how you can go on vacation during a statewide freeze. I'm, I mean, honestly, I was quite busy <laughs> during that freeze. There was a lot to do. We had to work with FEMA uh, to try and find resources and bring down things to help folks. There were people dying. There were in my district, you know, dying of carbon monoxide poisoning because they brought a generator into their apartment uh, and the fumes killed them. Uh, there was you know, coordination to be done. You could volunteer. There's any number of things that you could be doing. And so that same attitude also leads you, I think, to not have our best interests at heart you know, in your representation. And what we've seen, I think, and what we'll see in this debt ceiling will likely be that Senator Corner will vote responsibly, most likely, to uh, you know, prevent a default. Senator Cruz will not. But on the infrastructure bill, I will see, you know, he did not vote for $35 billion to come to Texas. On the Chips and Science Act, Senator Corner helped push that through. Senator Cruz voted against that. Uh, so I also think he's out of step with, uh, you know, even the Republican um, senator who he serves with. So. I think we can do a lot better, I, I believe, in our state. We obviously have an issue here with getting enough folks to vote. Uh, and that's something we have to overcome together. Uh, I was a voting rights lawyer. I think that there are some laws that should not be in place and that are particularly, uh, I think, suppressive. But we can't just you know, throw up our hands and say, well, you know, uh, it's, it's too hard to vote. We're not going to try. Uh, and in my experience, when you work with folks and you tell them uh, that, yes, it's going to be harder for you to do, but it's really important that you are engaging your democracy, uh, that they'll respond. Uh, and so we're going to do that. We're going to try and be, I'll try and be somebody who you know, Republicans and independents can feel comfortable voting for. You know, I've had a very bipartisan record in my time in Congress. 70% uh, of the bills that I've co-sponsored have been bipartisan. I'm one of the few members of Congress you'll see that's endorsed both by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is sort of the, the big national voice of business, and the AFL-CIO, sort of the you know, biggest of the you know, labor organizations. It's possible to do both. Uh, you have to you know, be conscientious and approach your job seriously. Uh, but I think, you know, I think we're ready for that change. What do you say to, so I talk to a lot of people in my day job, you know, um, every election we go out, you know, talk to folks at the polls uh, or talk to people before the election, you know, about whether they're gonna vote, what they're thinking about, you know, and I think, you come across a lot of people who are not engaged, who are not, they don't buy that it's gonna do anything for them if they vote. You know, they don't trust that the folks in Washington, that you and your colleagues are really gonna work in their interest. And so I guess I'm wondering, you know, and I think, you know, when we, when we talk about sort of low voter turnout, you know, I think that's part of the story, that there is a sense of, from folks that, you know, sort of there's, there's not much that will actually happen if you vote or don't vote. Life will go on, I'll still have my job, I'll still pay my rent, you know. So what do you say to people to, to really kind of move them to, to actually think that something can happen? Yeah. Well, apathy's absolutely a problem. Um, part of it also is when you have you know, decades of you know, uh, difficulty voting or difficulty being involved, that it doesn't, it's not something you are expected to do, it's not something that you're culturally uh, a part of, you know, your, Sort of family life, and my family, my mom, you know, made me vote and go with her to vote when she was voting, and so it's just a very different uh, situation. Part of it also is my story. I mean, I have a story that comes from the same background as some of the folks that you're talking about, which is you know going to public schools, Hillcrest High School, all the way, uh, and 
you know, being raised by a single mother, struggling growing up, knowing that. Uh, but also, I think we've seen that it's not true that it'd just be all right. <laughs> I mean, right now, uh, after the Dobbs decision, women are second-class citizens in the state of Texas right now. And you can't just say that the extremism has no impacts. It has very real impacts, and we're seeing that every single day, and we're hearing more and more stories that are going to continually drive that home how uh, this is impacting us. And I do think that our growing reputation for political extremism is going to hurt sort of this incredible story that we have had as a state, where it's already true that UT Southwestern is having you know, fewer women apply you know, to come there, where OBGYNs are not wanting to come to Texas. It's already true that we're going to see you know, the, the talented who are trying to recruit from out of state to come to our state are going to pause and say, I don't know if I'll be a, a fully, uh, you know, have full rights in the state of Texas. That's a problem for us on the business side. It's a problem for us in terms of our economy. And so that extremism has real impacts. And to be clear also, we don't have to move all 9.6 million Texans who didn't vote in the last election. We have to move, you know, 600,000. And it's, it's very much doable. And I think we have to understand that as well, that sort of the narrative of our state really isn't supported by the data in terms of where we've been in our last few elections. We're in a state that Joe Biden lost by five points. Senator Cruz won his last re-election by two and a half points. Okay, it's, these are very small numbers in terms of, you know, the margins. Uh, and so it, it's absolutely, uh, I think, incumbent on our campaign uh, to try and get folks excited to tell my story, to tell them what I want to do. Uh, but it's also going to be incumbent on our communities together deciding that you know, we're going to do everything we can to try and increase you know, turnout and to try and get folks involved in their democracy. And that, I think, that project, I think, has been ongoing for us for some time. We are seeing some, some improvements in that area. And so um, that's what we're going to try to build on. You're doing something that is kind of rare uh, right now, which is you're leaving a, a relatively safe Democratic seat uh, to run for a statewide office in Texas, which, again, hasn't, Democrats haven't won since 1994. So I, I guess I'm curious, like, just sort of if you can pull back the curtain for us a little bit on how um, other members kind of think about making decisions like that. You know, I, I think about the last election where you had uh, nobody uh, from the congressional delegation, you know, running for a statewide office, even, you know, when, for example, the attorney general was in a more precarious position, I guess. Um, so, you know, like, what's, what is it that, that sort of, what is the calculus that, that a, a member of Congress does when they're looking at a decision like that and saying, should I throw my hat in the ring or not to, to try to do this thing that's going to be hard, but, you know, would also put somebody who has some political capital, who has a campaign infrastructure, who has connections to donors, you know, in the ring for a statewide office in a state where Republicans, you know, continue to dominate over and over. Yeah, see, I just, I, I just never think about it that way, and that's pro probably <laughs> why you know, I'm running for Senate, is that I don't see myself as a career politician, and I never have. This is my third career that I'm on. I've been better at three than some people have been at one. Um, and, <laughs> you know, and I, I never thought that I was going to be... I wanted to serve my community, and that's why I ran. The district that I represent isn't just a district to me. It's my district, right? It's, it's where my, you know, school is, where my family lives, where, like, Everywhere I drive, I'm like, oh, you know, that's where this happened. This is what, you know what I mean? And so it's very personal for me. And I felt like uh, the incumbent who I ran against wasn't reflective of the community that I grew up in and didn't represent us anymore. And I feel the same way about Ted Cruz. 
And it's been in my experience that uh, if you feel that way and you have the capacity to do something about it, you should. Uh, and so, I, you know, I don't think of it as, you know, in terms of safe seat, uh, you know, leaving. I mean, to me, that's kind of the, the attitude that leads you to just get in office and sit there and not do anything important or not take any risks or not say what you think should be done. Uh, and to me, that's also, that's just not the approach that I've ever taken to the job, which is that this is a public service. Uh, it's not something that, it's not my seat. It's y'all's seat, you know what I mean? It's, it belongs to the community. I'm re representing it for now, and I'm proud to do that. Uh, but, and I'm doing my very best. I'll give you, you know, my you know, whole mind, body, and soul. Uh, but at the end, it's not just a political decision for me. It's about, you know, in, in the case of my congressional seat, my community, in the case of the Senate race, my state. Uh, I want to pivot and talk about foreign policy. Yeah. You sit on the Foreign Affairs Committee. This is the World Affairs Council. Yeah. Seems like the right thing. Um, we'll start with Ukraine. Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, says you know, the, the only acceptable outcome uh, in this war is a complete Ukrainian victory against Russia, you know, getting all of its territory restored, including Crimea, um, and getting some kind of reparations from Russia. Uh, and basically the argument he makes is that this doing anything less than that would embolden Putin, embolden bad actors around the world to break the rules, you know, to do something like this again. Um, but getting there means the U.S. is going to be committing perhaps billions and billions more dollars in aid and weaponry. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering, do you agree that a total victory is the only acceptable outcome? Or is there a point at which the U.S. sort of tries to figure out, is this, you know, where, where our interests end uh, or depart ways from Ukrainians? Well, this is not our war, and it won't be our peace agreement, right? This will be determined by the Ukrainians. And I think it's really important that we continue to state that. You know, I was in Ukraine, uh, not this January, but the last January, about a month before the invasion, met with President Zelensky, met with the defense ministers, become famous, the foreign minister, and the members of their legislature. Uh, and the thing that I was really struck by wasn't them, it was by some of the ordinary Ukrainians I met. There's one woman who I wrote about in an op-ed in the Dallas Morning News, uh, who I met and I asked her, you know, she's a young woman, she's, I think, did filmmaking. And I said, you know, what are you going to do if the Russians invade? She said, well, I'm going to get my white wine, my Kalashnikov, and I'm going to defend my country. And when they invaded, they actually did that. There were lines around the block where they were handing out, you know, uh, rifles to ordinary folks to defend their country. And it's been inspiring to me to see a young democracy defending itself against a brutal dictator who's trying to recreate and reconstitute the Soviet Union. And we can't accept that. We just can't accept it. The cost for us isn't in terms of dollars. It's in terms of the world order. It's in terms of you know, uh, our, whether or not we're going to go back to the days that you can roll tanks across a border uh, and just take whatever you want. And our role in it, uh, I think we should be, as the American people, incredibly proud of the arms that we provided them but they have used those arms to beat a much larger military and to uh, 
you know, almost entirely degraded to the point where it's going to take the Russians decades to get back to anything close to what they had coming into this. And so, you know, I think we do obviously have to think about you know, what is going to be the end game, but the end game will be dictated on the battlefield. Uh, and a lot of it, what we're seeing is that it is you know, falling into a stalemate, but we're seeing you know, the Ukrainians are probably going to have not a spring offensive now, but a summer offensive. Uh, and they've been incredibly effective with that. Uh, and we have to continue to support them uh, in their fight for freedom. And it's not just the United States. And I think President Biden has done an admirable job of bringing really the free world together in you know, rejecting this Russian aggression. This is Russia's war of choice. Vladimir Putin started it. He could end it tomorrow. In fact, you know, today he killed a nine-year-old girl in Kiev uh, with a, you know, just launching indiscriminate rockets and, and drones into what is a great city. Kiev is just like, you know, a great you know, city that any of us would feel comfortable walking around outside of you know, wartime. And a nine-year-old girl was killed today, and two other people were killed. Another nine-year-old is in uh, critical condition. They're war crimes. And, you know, I grew up learning about the United States being the leader of the free world, and that's what we are, and we can't allow this to happen. And so, to me, our support for Ukraine has been, uh, you know, vital. It's been the right thing to do. We have to continue to support them. I believe that they will win. I think they've already won in terms of the Russian goals of toppling the Zelensky government and putting in place a puppet, uh, and then eventually, you know, kind of assuming control over Ukraine. That's already been, that's not off the table. Now the question is, where will the boundaries be at the end? I think it likely will be that Russia may have some gains in the end from what they've done, but knowing the Ukrainians and having worked with them now for a year, they will never stop. There will be no period in which they accept uh, this, the assumption of, of, these con of the control of these areas, including Crimea. And so whether it's 10 years from now or 20 years from now, 50 years from now, they've literally told me this, or 100 years from now, they will get that territory back. And, and that, I think, uh, will be, what we're seeing is that this has been a strategic failure by Vladimir Putin. His role in the world has decreased. Uh, the ability for Russia to, be, to pretend that they are a responsible actor is completely gone. Uh, they are economically isolated from the West now. Uh, the you know, few things that they have are now much more reliant on China. Uh, and so uh, it, it's been a total strategic failure for them. Uh, you're also part of the U.S. Africa Working Group that was launched this week. Um, there's been something of a reset, I want to say, you know, with the Biden administration yeah. with regards to the U.S. in Africa. Uh, you had the, uh, a summit of African leaders coming to Washington. The vice president traveled to Ghana, to Tanzania, and Zambia in April. So why is this happening now? You know, and then this, this of course, working group. Yeah. gets launched. So what is happening now that, that hasn't been happening? What is this sort of responding to? Yeah, there's a probably well-earned reputation that we have uh, for showing up in Africa, lecturing them, and leaving. Um, and I think that's not reflective, uh, you know, of, of some of the great programs we've had in Africa, particularly PEPFAR, which was, you know, created by you know, our local resident, George W. Bush. In my opinion, the best thing he did in foreign policy was PEPFAR. And I will always, always credit him for that. He saved millions of lives. Uh, and it's, it's one of the best uses of American soft power in our history, quite honestly. But that was 2001. Yeah. But, you know, I think what we're also seeing is in the global south, 
um, Africa, but also Latin America as well, uh, is you know the the rise of Chinese influence, uh, and they're using that influence basically uh, for malign purposes uh, through uh, predatory lending, uh, through uh, you know corruption, you know, offering you know, payments to officials if they'll you know agree to this and. You have countries that are already trying to battle corruption. You have the Chinese coming on top of that and adding more. Uh, and also, we're seeing a fatigue with the Chinese approach in Africa that does create an opening for us if we are able to you know, take advantage of it responsibly. Because what we are coming with is a very different set of tools. It's tools to help you grow your workforce. It's tools to help you improve education in your country. It's tools to help you empower women and girls. It's tools to deal with, uh, you know, pandemics before they can break out, you know, like Ebola and, and things like that. Uh, and it's not predatory, and it's also not, our interest isn't in that they're going to then give us you know, access to a rare earth mine. It's that then you'll be a more stable and productive world partner and, and global partner and trading partner. Uh, and so there's a lot of advantages to that. And in my time uh, earlier last year, I went to Kenya as part of a presidential delegation uh, for the inauguration of the new Kenyan president. Uh, and there, and also in my meetings with African leaders, you know, they want us to come in and do more. They want us to be more active. They don't want to have only the choice of China or uh, you know, nothing. And so we, we need to play a much more active role in it. We need to not just see it as sort of a place where you get you know, raw materials from. We need to see it as a place that is the fastest growing region in the world, uh, that has you know, everything economically, to become a really important power in the world, but that can go one of two ways in terms of um, the kind of governance and partner that it'll be. It could be either you know, autocratic and restrictive, and we've seen some African countries go down that road, or it could be democratic and you know, broad, and we've seen some go down that, that, that road as well. And so we need to encourage the best angels be a productive partner. And I think, as I said, at times, we've gone to the Africans and said, you know, what you're doing um, it was bad, stop doing it, and you know, there's no program associated with it, there's no follow-up associated with it, it's just that you know, we're going to maybe sanction you or sanction, and that, that approach hasn't worked. Uh, and I do think the Biden administration understands that. I think the visit by the Vice President was really important, and he hit on a lot of important points in that, uh, and we just have to keep going. Is there, I mean, African affairs are, are rarely kind of the top of the discussion in the yeah. news. They're rarely the sort of first foreign policy issue yeah. that is, you know, kind of debated on the Sunday shows. I guess when you talk with your colleagues on both sides of the aisle, do you see, do they share your understanding of sort of what, what needs to be happening here? Yeah. Um, you know, of the, the potential and also the, the risk of not sort of strengthening relationships across the continent. Um, yeah. If you know, moving forward, I guess does it does it is there support there? I mean, one of the things that that you know came out of the the summit that the president had was you know a pledge for more funds, mm -hmm. more support, and that's something that Congress has to authorize. I yeah. guess is that level of support there? Uh, yes and no. Um, I think that the threat of China is now bringing you know some strange bedfellows together, you know, and. You'll have some folks who I don't think care at all about foreign aid and you know, see it not really as a good use of taxpayer dollars, which I d disagree with, uh, you know, saying, well, we have to at least counter China. 
Um, but you have some folks who I think who do understand it, and I include, this is bipartisan, there are some folks who deeply understand the importance of us engaging positively in Africa. Uh, but then when it, the rubber will meet the road, of course, as you said, on the funding uh, and whether or not to authorize you know, uh, the funds for that, because the Chinese are spending a lot. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, we don't have to do what they do. The Belt and Road Initiative uh, and the infrastructure projects that they're doing around the world are not always helping them, to be quite honest with you. They're putting down you know, a cheap highway with Chinese labor, not creating any jobs and leaving, and then a few years later it's crumbling and, and they're not able to maintain it. You know, and it's not, so we do things differently, and we've come in, I think, with, as I said, better, a better set of tools. They're harder to access because you have to you know, meet certain requirements, you have to not have human rights violations, and, and all that's important, uh, but it's slowing things down. And so, we, and we need to be more agile, in my opinion, in this. And so I'd like to see us make some adjustments to where our investments that we do make, we can deliver more quickly, we can have a discussion with an African leader and, you know, recognize a need and deliver on it quickly. And currently we're a little bit limited right now in the ability to do that. Yeah. Um, China, like I said, takes up most of the oxygen, or like yeah. you said, takes up most of the oxygen when it comes to you know, any foreign policy discussion. I guess, what, is there just one thing that you would point to that you think is you know, of, of greatest concern for you yeah. when it comes to China that you, you know, if you sort of helped move the ball forward on this one thing vis-a-vis -vis China, you know, that that would be something you'd be kind of proud of forever forward? Well, uh, you know, it's the obvious answer, uh, but I'll give it anyway. It, you know, it's Taiwan uh, and the status of Taiwan. Uh, yeah, I went to Taiwan not long ago, met with President uh, Tsai there. She's actually, I think, the most impressive foreign leader that I've um, met with, foreign head of state. She's incredibly sharp, and she do, I think she'd do very well in the United States as well. Uh, she knows her, her business. Um, but the Chinese are clearly you know, moving towards trying to uh, reacquire Taiwan uh, by force if necessary. They've failed in terms of trying to manipulate the elections. And in fact, the Taiwanese people, what we're seeing is in poll after poll, they see themselves less as Chinese and, and more with a separate identity. Uh, and you know, Xi Jinping is not going to allow that to happen you know, in terms of uh, full independence. And I think he is in legacy mode. He's gone for a third term, which is, you know, violates even their constitution. Uh, he's basically the sole dictator at this point uh, of over a billion people. Uh, and you know, he's you know, reacquired Hong Kong and, and brought it to heel. Some of those like incredible demonstrations that y'all might have seen in Hong Kong with hundreds of thousands of people protesting that they passed these you know, draconian laws and some of the leaders of those pro-democracy uh, protests are in jail. Uh, and I think he sees Taiwan as sort of the final jewel in his crown. But I think he's also seen the global response to Russia's war in Ukraine. And I hope he's taken pause from that. I know for a fact that he's activated the Japanese, the South Koreans, even the Indians, certainly the Australians, Really, the entire Pacific is you know, much more awake and aware of um, the threat from China. And that has also given us an opening. And so, you know, I've been to South Korea and you know, met with the Japanese as well. In fact, I had a Japanese um, uh, minister in my office the other day. Uh, and, you know, they are 
they're going to pass 2% of their GDP on defense. So the Japanese have been pacifistic you know, since the Second World War, but now they know that they have to build up to try and you know, be a, a stabilizer against China. And so what we want, ultimately, is not a military conflict with China. And I have, I'm not somebody who has any interest in that. But we do have to deter them. But there's multiple ways to deter. You have to be strong enough militarily that they know uh, that a military conflict would not be in their interest. But you also, we also have enormous economic tools because China's basically you know, building things for the American and the Western market. And so if we are, have a full decoupling of our economies, they're not going to be able to sell that stuff to. And they've got a lot of mouths to feed. So we have a lot of leverage over them, much more so even than we do with Russia, who is much more kind of calved off their economy from ours. Uh, and so it's not inevitable that we'll have a conflict with China. And when I hear some folks who I think are, you know, we might call hawks talking about you know, going to war with China, that's not in anybody's interest. We have to deter their aggression and try to make them a more responsible global partner and see what happens in their own domestic politics, because she won't be there forever. And there may be a different view coming in. Yeah. Um. Let me ask, we're going to get to questions in one second, but I, I do want to ask, you know, before moving into the audience questions, just about climate change. You know, we saw the latest report from the IPCC that just said, you know, time is almost up yeah. to do something, to do, to do something drastic, yeah. right, to, to really address this. And we're talking about not developing new fossil fuel projects. We're talking about cutting emissions you know, by 2040, which is even ahead of even where the Biden administration has said, um, going climate neutral, or sorry, carbon neutral by 2040. I, I mean, but you represent a state that has vast oil and gas, uh, you know, companies. Uh, it's a big part of the economy here. I guess, how do you kind of work to, to move Texas towards that future and being part of, you know, actually kind of keeping the climate or the global temperature from rising to a point where things get really bad. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly concerned about it, you know, uh, about the state of the climate. Uh, I've got two young boys. I think about, you know, what world we're going to leave to them. Uh, and the, the, the science and the data is clear, the data are clear, uh, that, uh, you know, we have, you know, through human activity, it created a situation that could have, you know, some kind of catastrophic collapse at some point. And certainly we're already experiencing uh, so many of the effects, and it's costing us hundreds of billions of dollars a year, you know, in forest fires. Uh, Hurricane Harvey was an example that was, you know, a storm that was exacerbated by uh, climate, you know, droughts. Uh, but we are an energy state, and we will always be an energy state. And we are leading in renewable energy as well, which is one of the reasons why it's strange that the legislature is attacking renewable energy uh, in, in Austin, because we're the number one wind power state in the country. We're the number two solar power state in the country, and we have the capacity uh, to grow that. Our, our energy leadership can come in multiple facets. Uh, but it's also true that uh, natural gas is going to have a really important role to play in the reduction of emissions. Uh, you know, if we replace coal power with natural gas power, we have a reduction of, of emissions. And I think in the Inflation Reduction Act at the end of the last Congress that we passed, which is the biggest investment uh, in, uh, you know, kind of uh, climate change policy in American history. Uh, we have, I think it said we'd have a 30% reduction in emissions by 2030 from just the Inflation Reduction Act that we passed. And it's incentive-based. The incentive is to you know, capture these greenhouse gases. The incentive is to try and move to uh, cleaner and more efficient uses in your home. So 
it's, it's all of us and it, it's in every capacity of our life. It's from our transportation to our housing, uh, you know, to uh, the way we generate power, of course. But for Texas, as I said, we're always gonna be an energy state and we can lead, I think, uh, in a proactive way on being the very best at you know, methane capture and making sure that we're not having any methane leaks from our, uh, where we're extracting. Natural gas has become even more important since the war in Ukraine uh, and the Europeans kind of no longer taking you know, Russian gas through pipelines and taking a lot of LNG deliveries. It's more important than it's ever been. So I don't think it's going anywhere, but we can find important reductions and we need to work on the technology that it is starting to come online of uh, carbon recapture to try and find ways to you know, be really aggressive about this. But it has to be done in a way that's realistic. And I think sometimes, particularly in my party, you'll hear discussions around this that are just completely divorced from reality. And people will pull up in their car that has gasoline in it and say, we're gonna get rid of you know, all, all uh, oil and gas by you know, 2025 or something. It's like, really, are you gonna get rid of that car by then? I'm probably not, you know? And so we have to be realistic about it. I don't think that's, I think we have to be aggressive and, and do what we can. But we have to tell people the truth, which is that it's not like we're going to move away from oil and gas in the next five years, in the next 10 years. It's gonna be a part of our mixture of energy that we're gonna to continue to have. But we have to find more efficient ways to do it, to capture it, and hopefully at some point to recapture it. Gotcha. Okay, um, turning now to audience questions. The first comes from Clarence Saunders, a recent graduate of Hillcrest All High right. School. Uh, Good job, Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He asks, as a well-accomplished black congressman, what advice would you offer an African-American with similar goals to your own? Yeah, don't go to the NFL. <laughs> uh, no. um, you know, listen, I, I really think that uh, we're certainly not past the race playing a role in, in, in our society. But you know, my experience has been uh, that you know, if you work hard, you do the right things, the people will give you a chance. Uh, and, but the hard work component has always been number one. And, you know, I didn't make it in the NFL because I was like a high draft pick or because I was so talented. I was an undrafted. And I, you know, forced them basically to keep me. I, I went, when I went to law school, I'd been out of school, you know, for six years, I think at that point, going to law school with a bunch of whiz kids. I had to, you know, work to get be, you know, where I was in my field in the legal profession. And of course, running for Congress was, you know, a huge amount of work and then being in Congress. And so I would just say that, and I tell this to everybody, uh, every young person I talk to, just try being the hardest worker in the room and see what happens. I mean, honestly, just try it. See what happens. Nobody says, man, the person's working so hard, but I don't want to keep them on my team. <laughs> Nobody says that. Uh, you know, I mean, when, I think when the coaches had cut time in, on the Titans, they'd say, well, Allred is slow and dumb, but at least he works hard, so we gotta keep him. <laughs> you know? uh, and, and honestly, I mean, that's been my approach. You know, I think uh, President Obama told us once, you know, don't worry about what you're gonna be, worry about the good you're gonna do on the way, right? And I think that's, that's also something that I think about a lot, which is I, I'll have some ambitious young folks come up to me and say, you know, I wanna be, senator or this or that, and it's like, that's fine. Uh, but maybe the goal should just be, I wanna really help people in this area. And it might lead you into public service or it might lead you into something else, right? There are admirable, important jobs that are not getting, you know, have your name in the paper. 
My mom taught for 27 years. Nobody ever you know, thanked her publicly, right? But I think it was a really important job. Uh, and so there's lot, lots of ways to serve, lots of ways to have a positive impact. And I think you should just find one that interests you. Uh, this is about immigration. Can you please explain Biden's new immigration plan requiring people seeking asylum to apply in their home country? Yeah. Doesn't this expose them to danger? What would you propose? Yeah. International law says, I'm just reading the card, yeah. that says they can apply in, a, in the first safe state. Yeah. Well, it's to apply in their home country or if they pass through a country where they could have applied. Uh, and what we have to do now, I think, is provide them with the tools to do that safely. There's an app. Uh, that the State Department has developed that you can download, and it's not working as well as it should yet, um, but hopefully it'll, it'll be online working well so that folks don't have to make this journey. Basically, what I think the Biden administration is doing that I agree with, and there's some things I disagree with, is saying, don't make this journey. It's too dangerous, and it won't work, right? The coyotes and the smugglers are lying to you. This is not the way to do this, right? With Title 42 expiring, it's actually worse if you cross over illegally. It used to be that if you cross over in Title 42, you're immediately kicked out. Now if you cross over, it's five years before you can even apply again for uh, any kind of asylum. So it's worse for you to come now with the exp expiration of Title 42. But, so we're also having an information war uh, with folks who are desperate, honestly, and with folks who are trying to take advantage of them and saying, just go there and if you... If you sneak across and you have a child with you, you can stay. Well, you know, that, that's not a, a responsible way to conduct immigration policy for any country, right? And, and what we were seeing at the border was just unacceptable. It was unacceptable for the border communities. My family's from Brownsville. The weight that was falling on you know, Catholic charities on the local communities was incredibly heavy, and it was too much. People having to you know, sleep on the street in huge numbers. It's not acceptable. We wouldn't want that in any, any of our cities. We don't want it in our border communities. And that's one of the criticisms I've had, is that instead of sending you know, the National Guard you know, or the governor or someone else like that, send resources to those border communities so they actually you know, help out. And at the federal level, we need to send the resources to process folks much more quickly so it's not such a slow process. But the other thing that they've done uh, is to open regional centers in some of these countries where you can apply there and have your, your interview there instead of having to then try to come to the border. So it's all about saying, don't make this journey. It's too dangerous, and it's not going to work. There's another way to do it. Now, we ha it's, on, it's incumbent on us to try and, I think, put in place the ability for that to work for people. Uh, but this is where I come to one of my frustrations with our current senator, uh, Ted Cruz, and with Washington in general, is that you'll see them go down there, and it's like they're having like a safari you know, and it's like, you know, they're like looking, peering through the bushes, you know, and it, it's like, pass some policy to help. Quit going on Fox News and, and pointing out how bad it is. You've been 11 years in the United States Senate. Where's your bill? Right? Uh, so, because we know what the structure looks like. We do. In, the, in President Bush's administration, in President Obama's administration, each time they had a structure for a comprehensive reform that would have had billions of dollars more for border security, on top of reforming our immigration system in a way that actually meet the needs of our economy. If there's any employers out here today, I know you've probably come to my office at some point and said, we need more workers. Right. We do. 
but they can't get in. You got kids at UTD who are going to graduate on a student visa who are going to leave the country because they can't then stay, but who want to stay here. And so they're going to go to Canada. I've talked to a young woman a couple years ago. She was, wants to be a doctor uh, from India at UTD. I asked her what she was going to do when her student visa expired. She said, well, I'm going to go to Canada. She'll probably marry a Canadian there and stay there. And we need a doctor here. So the system isn't working, and, and we need to have serious people sit down and say, okay, let's comprehensively reform our system so that we, yes, secure the border, but also have a process that actually brings in the folks that we need. And to do that, you have to stop demagoguing and get to work. What can voters do to hold Supreme Court justices to ethical standards? Not topical for Dallas at all, right? You know, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's the most, uh, it's like, you know, Supreme Court is the least transparent, um, least accountable branch of government. They're the only judicial branch that, has, that really has no uh, ethics policy. It's self-enforced. They do their own investigations. They declare themselves, you know, to be uh, righteous. And it's unacceptable. It just is. It's unacceptable. You know, the decisions they're making are impacting you know, every single American. And we have very little insight or understanding of who's influencing those decisions. And there are people who are actively trying through influence and gifts and even sometimes funding to influence those decisions. And we don't, we don't know what's going on with it. And it's unacceptable. And so, you know, the, if I had a magic wand, I often say this, what I would do is I, I'd, you know, I'd fix our voting to where it's easily accessible and, and safe and you know, everyone can be involved. I'd do campaign finance because I think it's just crazy how we fund campaigns. And I'd do an ethics standard across the board um, because so many things that were norms need to become laws, right? It used to be like a norm that you would recuse yourself from certain cases. Well, probably should be forced to, you know? We saw that, I think, in the Trump administration. There were so many things that the president often would never do because it was a norm that wasn't done. Well, now it needs to be a law that you can't do that, right? You can't keep your investments while you're president so we don't know who's, what, what interest you're acting in. Is it your personal financial interest or is it the national interest, right? And so, so many of those things that were norms need to become laws. So that, that kind of a package. Is uh, that a possibility? I actually think, I actually think Congress it could right be. Now. I, well, I, you know, we need to... We probably need to change at least one senator. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Which one? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, the campaign finance law that the Supreme Court kind of blew up with Citizens United was McCain-Feingold. McCain, Republican, Feingold, uh, Democrat. You know, it used to be bipartisan that we both understood that you need to have some rules of the road, you know. Uh, and I, I guess we've gotten a little bit away from that. Uh, but the American people, people of Texas, I think, understand, you, we, you know, we understand corruption, we understand, like, influence when we see it. And you don't really know exactly, it's kind of like uh, the Supreme Court standard for, you know, pornography, right? They don't know what it is until they see it. But, uh, you know, it's, it's we, we have to keep pushing for it and make it something that we vote on and we insist upon uh, because, you know, as I said, the decisions they're making are affecting, you know, enormous swaths of not only our lives, but of our kids' lives and for the future. So we need to have something in place. Mm -hmm. um, 
we'll go quick. We got two more questions. Uh, one, beyond removing Ted Cruz from, con from the Senate, how will you demonstrate your contribution to the Senate and to the people of Texas? That's a good question. <clears throat> I mean, I think that you know, my approach in Congress has, has been, and I hope you know, folks agree, uh, to try and find common ground where we can. I'm, I don't sacrifice my values on anything, but I often will try and find, and not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Uh, and we have, in Senator Cruz, an ideologue uh, who, you know, I think is, is only going to pursue one path, but that path has not produced a lot of legislation that's helped our state. I mean, can you think of like the, the dominant, you know, what's the major Cruz bill that's helped us? He's been there for over a decade, right? That's what the job is. <laughs> it's not going on TV, actually. It's not podcasting three times a week. It's not writing a bunch of books about how de Democrats are the devil. That's actually not the job. You're a legislator to pass laws to help people do that. And honestly, that's what I would try and do. You might not agree with everything I would do. And I don't expect in a state of 30 million people that anyone would. But I think you would probably see that I was conscientious about it, I took it seriously, and that I didn't just pursue an ideological agenda, but that I thought I was trying to do what was best for the state. And honestly, that shouldn't be that unusual. Uh, and, and so to me, in my main criticism, Senator Cruz, uh, is that he has not done the work that he was elected to do. He's been an ideological leader, uh, he's run for president, he's gone on vacation famously, he has not done that work that we elected him to do. Um, let me just ask you this last one and then we will wrap up, but I, I wanna make sure that we hear from the young folks in the audience. This is from Keegan Koble, I think, uh, from Cistercian. He asks, what specifically can we do to ensure America is able to respond more quickly and effectively to people in other parts of the world suffering from war from natural disasters? Wow. Which I think is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a really thoughtful and big question. question. So I wanted to put that what to you. What a great question. I love it. I think that we have too often seen uh, American intervention as being a military intervention. Uh, and we do have the strongest military in the world, and it's important that we do. We're seeing that every single day. Deterrence is important. The ability to help others defend themselves is important. But our soft power goes just as far, if not farther, as our hard power. As I said, with PEPFAR, we impact millions of African lives that are then going to be you know, productive citizens, help their communities through a program that for us is basically like a rounding error in our budget. And some of the programs that are most successful in the State Department are also some of the programs that are least funded. Uh, and you know, pro-democracy programs, helping women and girls, you know, as I said, dealing with uh, you know, you know, debilitating health issues, that if you can get that off the board, people can stand up for themselves. Uh, and, and so, you know, to me, when we have these budget discussions, uh, we, we need to, you know, our, our military budget and our defense budget just dwarfs anything close to what we do uh, in, in terms of our foreign aid and our foreign you know, development programs. And I'm not saying that there should be parity, but we need to do more in that field because when we do that right, we don't have to use the military, right? Uh, and if you ask most of our military leaders, and I do talk to them about this, they'll tell you 
that their best partner is the State Department in you know, some of these hotspots around the world, because they can help them diffuse a problem instead of having to send in some young men and women that potentially have a, a negative you know, consequence. Uh, and, and so it's, it's really important. But as Americans, I think we, you know, we sometimes forget that. And I can just tell you, being on the Foreign Affairs Committee and going around the world, how much people appreciate us. They were shocked by January 6th. They, the first question I get when I go around the world is, is the United States going to be okay? What do you because tell them? I tell them we will, but that like they, like them, we also have gone through a challenge in our democracy. I actually think in some ways it can help uh, in, in a strange way to say we, uh, it's, not, it's not easy having a democracy. Um, but they're also so... They, they want us to be involved. They want our, as I said, the positive influence that we bring. Uh, they would prefer us to the alternative, which is increasingly only China, sometimes Iran, if you're in the Middle East, less so Russia, since they're mostly all they're doing is selling arms, and less of that too. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, right now it's becoming a, you know, a bipolar world in terms of you know, which direction you're going to go in, and they would much rather go in ours. And so we as the American people need to understand that and recognize sort of the incredible position of leadership that we have, uh, that we are the leaders of the free world, uh, that the, the world looks to us, uh, and that uh, you know, we can make dramatic changes and make huge differences in the lives of people around the world that will ultimately benefit the United States in the long run with very relatively small investments. Uh, and that's something that I try and keep in mind you know, in my work, and I just hope that folks you know, see that and, and maybe follow you know, some of the programs that are out there that are making a big difference. Because when you stop Ebola in a country, you know, in the, from it only impacting dozens of people, as opposed to hundreds and thousands of people, which is what happened during the Obama administration, no one really re realizes what you stopped from happening. They don't get a big thank you from it, but the people there know, right? And it changed the trajectory of what could have happened. And it's just so important. So thank you for that question. It's a great question. Congressman Colin Allred, thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for coming and being here. Oh. Congressman Christopher, thank you for that wide-ranging conversation. We really enjoyed it. You could hear from the claps and the cheers that we enjoyed it. Thanks for visiting us in Dallas. We have a small token of our appreciation, and we'll be tuning in. So thank you so much. Thank you again, everyone. Good night. Thank you.